just ask him to meet with us and to speak to us this evening. So uh, let's read, uh, picking up where we left off in that reading at the beginning. We are in uh, John chapter 19. And earlier we read verses 1 through 16 just to sort of set a flavor for us. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 17 and read down to verse 30 this evening. So I'm in John chapter 19, picking it up in verse 17. The Word of God says, And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. Then they therefore among themselves, they said therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they, full, they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word, and we know that because it's your word, it has already touched hearts, it has pricked consciences, and it has instructed our thinking and our feeling, just as your word should do. And so as we look into it this evening, on this special occasion, on this night, during the Passover, where Jesus, the Lamb of God, became for us the sacrifice for sin, the holy sacrifice for sin, that our sin might be passed over, as it were, and not be judged. And Lord, you withheld from us that which was due. You gave us mercy. You showed us mercy. And you have given us that which we have not deserved, which is your grace. And so we thank you as we look into your word this evening. 
that you have something for every single one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. I think something every Christian should do when we go through this season of the year is take your Bible and go to every gospel, to Matthew, to Mark, to Luke, to John, because they all have an account of the crucifixion and Jesus' suffering, or his passion as we sometimes call it, and read through those passages of Scripture. Because as we've said many times before, the Gospels give us sort of different perspectives. Uh, sort of like standing on the four corners of an intersection looking inward as an accident happens and you get four different perspectives. Many things are the same, some things are slightly different. And so here we are this evening in John's Gospel. We will look briefly at some other passages of Scripture, but we are going to focus our time here this evening in John chapter 19. And so we know in the story of the crucifixion of Jesus that um, on the evening that he was betrayed that he had the Lord's table with his disciples, that last Passover meal. That after that Passover meal, that Judas Iscariot went out to betray him. Jesus then went with his disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he went there, uh, he had the disciples wait for him sort of near the entrance. And then he brought Peter, James, and John in further with him. And then he said, wait here and watch and you pray while I pray. And then he went a little further away and the gospels tell us about a stone's throw away. So we assume that was just a few feet because they could hear what he was praying and what he, he was saying. And they heard enough to record what he said in his prayers. And so as Jesus was there, uh, knelt down in the garden of Gethsemane, um, praying, seeking the heart of his father, what he prayed, we are told in the scriptures, is, Father, if, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And we may know that, that those may be familiar words to us, but those words that Jesus prayed tell us where his heart was and where his head was as he was headed into this evening and through the night as he would suffer and be betrayed and be beaten and be uh, harshly mistreated. Jesus, as he prayed there, kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, let this cup pass from me if possible, he is referring to the cup of the wrath of God that must be poured out upon the sin of mankind. And we see all throughout the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, that God had told his people, his chosen ones, over and over and over, I love you, I want you to turn your heart to me, I want you to follow after me. But so often God's people turn their backs on him, even as we often do today. And of course some have speculated that a part of what we're going through here with this coronavirus situation could in part be God's judgment that maybe he's uh, in part removing his hand just a bit, his hand of blessing from this country and that the church may be uh, in many respects apostate where we have departed from following our God and, and looking to him just like the nation of Israel did in the Old Testament. And there could be truth to that. I don't know if specifically if this coronavirus situation is related to that, but certainly we know God is in control. 
And so God, if he is indeed behind this in the sense of maybe this is some sort of judgment to us, I want you to understand something tonight as we come to these passages of scripture. That God is in control, that God is in charge. And that no matter what happens from a godly biblical Christian perspective, we have a unique perspective in that we have a savior. And our savior, as he knelt in that garden that evening, went to bat for us. You see, he knew what was in front of him. He knew that this cup of wrath was the thing to be feared the most and what lay ahead. Not that the suffering was going to be easy. Not that the pain that he would suffer wouldn't be real, it was. But for him, being a part of the Trinity, being a part of the Godhead, something very unique was about to happen to our Lord Jesus Christ. And what was about to happen to him was that for the first time, not only in human history, but in eternity, there would be a separation, a rift, as it were, in the Godhead. That Jesus, the Son, would be separated from God the Father and God the Spirit because he became sin for us. And we'll look into that as we go a little further into this passage and into this account this evening. So Jesus, as he was there and submitting himself to the cross, fully obedient to what Isaiah 53, another passage that you should read, what Isaiah 53 said, Isaiah 53, laying out a detailed blow-by-blow -blow account of what would happen to Jesus Christ. And then also laying beside that Psalm 22, Psalm 22 being a messianic psalm that would talk about the brutalization that the Messiah would suffer. And you read Psalm 22 and you read Isaiah 53 and then you read these four gospel accounts and you realize that these accounts laid out succinctly and in detail hundreds of years after those two passages of scripture were written and you see them happening, they're coming to pass exactly as it was written. So Jesus now being crucified, lifted up on the cross in the place of the skull called Golgotha. <coughs> Excuse me. He was bearing his cross. He went out to this place where they crucified him. And we know that crucifixion was this criminal's death and it was a very difficult and painful death. You know, when we think about capital punishment today in our country and in our society, the things that we do to people are, are quite humane compared to the times of old when people were put to death for their sins and for their crimes. The, sin, the, the penalty of crucifixion would involve scourging someone and that would be beating them with what we know as a cat of nine tails. And they would take... Um, pieces of leather and pressed into them little tiny stones and pieces of glass and shards of metal to make it all the more brutal when they, they scourged or they beat or they whipped the prisoner. And the point of the scourging was to get that prisoner to confess not only to the crime they had committed, but perhaps they had committed other crimes that in a sense were cold cases or had never been solved. And perhaps they would be able to get them to confess to those as well and, and close some cases as it were. And so as they would beat and scourge that person, uh, that, that cat of nine tails, that a scourge would rip the flesh from their back. So it wasn't just the beating. 
It was a brutalization. It was a tearing, a shredding of the flesh. And of course, we don't like to think about these things. We don't like to, to see the gratuitous violence on TV. We don't like to see the blood and gore and the guts and all of those things, and for good reason. But our Lord and our Savior submitted and subjected himself to these things. And he did it for us, for our benefit. There are some great books out there that if you'd like to know more about it, you can read and understand exactly what our Lord went through as he suffered the violence of the scourging and the preparation for being put on the cross. And then when they got him to the cross, they laid him down on the cross. Some say he was naked. The, the pictures tend to portray him with something akin to underwear on. But either way, he would have been so humiliated by that point, so dehydrated from the loss of blood and having nothing to drink, and of course having uh, no uh, pain management of any kind, he was suffering under immense overload, his sensory overload, his nervous system is in complete shock, his cardiac system is in complete shock, and he's going through this uh, in a very unjust way. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. All he did was love people and preach the truth of God's word. And he offended the religious rulers by claiming to be the son of God, making himself out to be equal with God, which was what fueled their hatred and their vehemence against him. So Jesus, now being crucified, laid down on that cross, stretched out his feet, put on top of each other a nine-inch spike, very akin to a railroad spike, driven through his feet. And that same nine-inch spike driven through his wrists in such a way that they would hold him up and then they lifted that cross up. And then he would, uh, the, the crucified person would hang there until they died. And the death was often the death of suffocation because the way they were crucified was in such a way that they had to push up on that nail in their feet, which would send a wave of excruciating pain through them. But as he pulled up, he had to pull up on the nails in his wrist, which again would send a wave of excruciating pain. And that person who was crucified would go through that until they were just overwhelmed with blood loss and pain and a loss of oxygen and all of those things. It was a very violent and brutal way for a person to die. It was cruel and inhumane to say the least. And so Jesus, as he was there on the cross, we are told that there are seven things he uttered from the cross and just to, to touch upon them briefly, in Luke's gospel and in John's gospel, we're told that Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Now, when you are suffering and you're suffering unjustly at the hands of others, the normal human response is to respond in kind, to respond with hatred, and to say horrible and mean things back to the person who is doing these things to you. But we see what Jesus said, which proves that he truly was the Messiah. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So Jesus, who taught, love your enemies, is now showing how to love enemies by not only saying this, but he's expressing his heart. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. 
And we see in Paul, uh, as he wrote in Romans chapter 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We find in Psalm 22, as Jesus was crucified and he's going through this process, it says, For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. And yet Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then in Luke's gospel, again, Luke 23, it says, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. When Jesus uttered those words, he was speaking to one of the two criminals who had been crucified on his left and his right. As you may recall the story, those two criminals were crucified legitimately for crimes that they had committed. And one of them uh, was, you know, cursing Jesus and, you know, he was, you know, in the gall of bitterness um, as he was dying. And the other man was saying, you know, we are here because we deserve to be. But this man did not deserve anything. He's committed no crime. And then he cried out to Jesus from his position at Jesus' side and said, you know, Jesus, would you, would you remember me? just hoping for some mercy. In that moment, that man had a, had a clarity about who Jesus was and understanding. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So now think about this. The first thing he says is, Father, forgive them. So Jesus is expressing grace and mercy from the cross as he is being brutally and unrighteously treated and judged. And then he says as his second act is the second thing that falls from his lips. Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And I can't begin to tell you how many times I have been able to say to people to use this scripture as a form of comfort because they've had someone whom they love and to whom they're very close who is on their deathbed and as far as they know that that person's never put their trust or their hope or their faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe the Lord gave us the example of the thief on the cross so that we could hold out hope against hope that even in those last moments of someone's breath, of their ability to reason, that they might cry out to the Lord just as this man did and that they might hear these words that Jesus would say to them, assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, Jesus told so many parables about this. He told the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Uh, and in that parable, he said, uh, as the owner went out to find people to work in his vineyard, some he went out and found at the very beginning of the day. And then as those workers got started and worked their day, he went out and continued to look for people, found them, brought them in and said, I'll pay you, just get to work. And that happened several times throughout the day. Then there were some people he brought in toward the very end of the day who worked maybe an hour or something like that. Then at the end of the day, as everyone gathered for their pay, he paid all of them the same. He gave those who worked only an hour a full day's wage just the same as he gave those who started from very early in the morning. And those who had worked earlier and longer were indignant. They said, this is not fair. How could you treat us this way? We should be paid more than them. They should be paid less than us. And Jesus said, isn't it up to me, the master, to give 
how I wish, to, to spend my money how I wish. And Jesus told that parable, and I believe in part it supports what happened here as he says, assuredly today you'll be with me in paradise. You see, we cannot fall into the trap of thinking that because uh, we've been a Christian many years and been walking with the Lord a long time, and that because someone's on their deathbed and they've never trusted in God, that in those last waning moments of consciousness and breath, that they might in faith reach out to the Lord and that he would say, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, the Lord loves in a way that we don't love. He loves people. He extends grace to people in a way that we don't understand. And so Jesus here expressing love and grace and mercy to this thief on the cross. And then number three, he said, woman, behold your son, as we read in this passage, and behold your mother. And from that hour, Jesus entrusted his mother to John, this disciple who wasn't literally one of his brothers, but he knew that John would care for her. And so Jesus, even in those moments as he should have been thinking about other things, as he was there suffering, knowing that he didn't have long to live. Instead, he showed compassion and concern for his very mother, saying, John, would you take care of her for me? And so Jesus, even in his last moments, crying out, saying, take care of my mom. You have to love Jesus' concern for others. And how often have we said that joy is an acronym for Jesus first, Others second, yourself last. Jesus caring for others even while he was suffering. Then number four in Mark's gospel, we find where about the ninth hour of the day that Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus reaches this point, now he was hoisted up on that cross somewhere around 9 a.m., and around noon, three hours into the crucifixion, we know that the sky became black and the clouds came over, the sun disappeared. And we believe in those three hours, as the scriptures tell us, from about noon to about three, that God was pouring out his wrath on his son, on that cross. And it was in those hours that Jesus felt this incredible separation from his father, and that's why he cried out here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, going back to the cup in the garden that Jesus prayed about, I imagine that Isaiah 53, verse six, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned aside everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then again in Psalm 22, verse one, Jesus quoting that very scripture said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? You see, for every person, especially a believer, who was ever tempted to say to God, in our pain and our suffering and our loneliness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, there's a scripture in the book of Hebrews that says that he has suffered and, and been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And you see, Jesus has borne our sins. He has carried our iniquities for us. 
And he did these things so that we might understand that he truly is the only person who can look at you and me and say, I know how you feel. You see, sometimes when we say that to one another and we're doing it because there's compassion in our hearts and we want to attempt to bring comfort, so often we have to say, if we're honest, I don't know exactly how you feel. Maybe you're going through a similar experience. Maybe you lost someone. Maybe you're going through a painful episode in your life. And maybe I went through a similar thing in my life, but that doesn't mean I know how you feel. Why? Because, as in the case when a parent dies, you don't know if that other person has joy and had a great relationship with their parents and loved them and they knew the Lord and that's a glorious homecoming, or if perhaps there's pain there, if there was never a good relationship, if there was a falling out that happened many years ago that was never resolved, and they never got to talk and to say I'm sorry or to apologize or, or any of those things. You see, it's difficult to say to someone else, I know how you feel. But Jesus can say that because Jesus has experienced everything, humanly speaking, that we will ever experience. And, ex and especially to say to God, why? Jesus said, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you see in that moment, as Jesus said that and fulfilled the scriptures and, and fulfilled prophecy, he wasn't just saying it, he felt it. It was happening to him at that moment. He felt separated from his father. After this, a little bit later in verse 28 of John 19, Jesus, uh, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Jesus, helping us understand his humanity. You see, Philippians chapter 2 talks to us about the humanity of Jesus and how he became a man and how he was fully God and fully man. And this this thing of understanding where did the divinity of Jesus end and begin and where did the humanity of Jesus end and begin. These are things that are too great for us that we cannot understand. Yet Jesus, as he was on the cross crying out, said, I thirst. And again, coming back to Isaiah 22, verse 14, I am poured out like water and all of my bones are out of joint, describing the process of crucifixion. My heart is like wax it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, which is just a piece of dry clay, a piece of pottery. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. You see, when Jesus cried out, I thirst, he wanted people to know that he was near the end. And then we're told that in fulfillment of the scriptures, Isaiah, excuse me, Psalm 69, it says, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And so at that moment, someone took uh, a sponge, dipped it in uh, that gall, that vinegar mixture, which was actually sort of an antiseptic uh, and an analgesic. And as they did that and extended it to his lips, that was considered to be something humane that what they would do during the crucifixion process and the dying process to sort of temporarily ease their pain. But as they did that, Jesus didn't drink from it to get relief from his pain. It just says they touched it to his lips. And so they gave it to him in fulfillment of the scripture, but I don't believe Jesus drank from it. And so when Jesus had finished the sour wine, saying number six, he said, 
It is finished. What did Jesus mean when he cried out? It is finished. And that's what I wanted to focus on for the last few moments tonight. When Jesus said it is finished, coming back to that cup in the garden that he prayed about. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. In that three hours from noon to three, when the wrath of God fell upon our Lord, and when he was separated from his Father, from his God. And thinking about what Jesus prayed in uh, the upper, well, not in the upper room, when he, he play, prayed in the garden uh, in John 17, what we call the high priestly prayer. And that's such an amazing prayer. It was at the end of the evening that he spent with his disciples just before the betrayer came with the, uh, the legion of men to, to come and get him. Jesus now saying, it is finished. And in that moment, he had prayed, Father, I've done everything. I fulfilled your will. I have done all that you asked me to do. And like what Paul wrote, Paul said, I've run the race, I've finished my course, I've kept the faith. That's what Jesus was saying here when he uttered those words, it is finished. And again, coming back to Isaiah 53, yet it pleased the Lord, verse 10, to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you, God, make his soul, Jesus, an offering for sin, he, God, shall see his seed, Jesus. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul, that is God looking at Jesus, and be satisfied. When it says there in Isaiah 53, 11, that he shall see the labor of his soul, that is God looking at what Jesus had endured in those three hours and even more on the cross. And as it says there, he shall be satisfied. Now in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, we are told that God loves us and that we love him. And then he says that when Jesus died, that his love was expressed to us and he became the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word, but what that word means is that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. That's what the word propitiation means. And that's what happened leading up to this moment when Jesus said, it is finished. In the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, and in that moment as God looked upon his son, he saw the labor of his soul. He saw that he, as the perfect lamb of God, in fulfillment of the Old Testament law, had become the sacrifice for sin. And we are told, of course, in the law that when the priest went in on the Day of Atonement, that he would go in and make that sacrifice and then he would sprinkle the blood of the perfect lamb that had been offered on the altar. And the altar was the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And as God himself would look down from heaven on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, he would see in, because God, as it were, had x-ray vision, and he could see those things that were inside the Ark that reminded him of the rebellion of man, the cup of manna from the wilderness, the broken tablets of stone, and the budded rod of Aaron. The budded rod symbolizing man's rebellion against God's authority and his established authority through the men that he had appointed the broken commandments that were broken even before they came down from the mountain. And then of course, the complaining that uh, the people in the wilderness had uttered against the Lord. 
And as God looked down upon those things, he saw the reminders of man's sin and insolence and rebellion against God. And yet, as the priest would go in on that day on Yom Kippur and sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the top of that altar, God would look down and it was like kryptonite to him, the blood of that lamb, and he couldn't see through it. And the reason was he had chosen for it to be that way so that you see the perfect sacrifice of the lamb satisfied his wrath. That blood as it was sprinkled became propitiation. There's that word again. And when Jesus says it is finished, we know in that moment that God looked upon Jesus and he looked upon the issue of sin and he said, it's done, it's taken care of. Paul wrote prophetically in 2 Corinthians 5.21 these words, For he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, what happened when Jesus was separated from his father, when the wrath of God was falling upon him, Jesus in the, that moment, in those three hours, took the sin of the world upon himself. And if you've ever seen uh, an, an old depiction of Atlas, you know, with the world on his shoulder standing under that load, that's sort of an idea, a very poor idea, but it's sort of an idea of what Jesus did for us, except he took the weight of the sin, the sin of the world upon his shoulders so that we could have a relationship with God. You see, the, those three words, it is finished, in the Greek, tetelestai, meaning that God has said it's paid in full. It is finished. You see, God no longer looks at my sin and yours as believers if you have trusted in Christ and says, I need to judge you for that sin. I need to punish you for that sin. You see, so often when things go wrong in our lives, don't we look at ourselves sometimes and say, God's punishing me for my sin? Now there is this thing called the discipline of the Lord. God does discipline us, but discipline is different from punishment. Discipline has the goodwill and the end of the person in mind, meaning I want them to learn not to do it again. And you know, as, as, as parents, when we discipline our children, we do so because we love them, because we want them to walk in the right way. You see, discipline always has the idea of restoration and healing and correction in place. But punishment, wrath, anger, does not have that in mind. It simply has in mind, I just need an object to express my anger and my wrath. But God, as he looks upon sin, because God is holy and we are not, God looks at us, sees our sin and says, I have to do something. I love them, but I can't love them because of their sin. And that's why Jesus had to come. And that's why Jesus, when he said, it is finished, to tell us die, it's paid in full. That Jesus now can say, I am the, the perfect payment for your sin. You see, this is the gospel. Jesus demonstrated the gospel on the cross. And when he said it is finished, those became for you and me the three greatest words next to those words, I love you. And in saying number seven, Jesus said in Luke's gospel after this, 
When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And in that moment, as Jesus gave up the ghost, as he died, as he passed from this life, we know there were so many scriptures that Jesus said, I lay down my life willingly. No one is taking it from me. You see, those men who brutalized Jesus and who betrayed him and who came and took him and who beat him and scourged him and, and put him through false trials, they only did that because it was allowed by the hand of God. And Jesus tells us that he himself allowed them to do these things. And so as, Father, as Jesus breathed his last and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Notice what he said. Into your hands I commit my spirit. How many people can say, as they are breathing their last breaths, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I submit to you only one. And his name was Jesus. I don't know about you, but should I... Uh, not experience the rapture, but have to pass from this life through the doorway of death. I would love to think that I could, in those waning moments, uh, have a, a cognizance enough to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, not because I want to be Jesus, but because I would like to be like him in character. And I think that's a, a wonderful goal to have, that we submit ourselves to the Lord and we realize that, as Job said, from dust we came and to dust we shall go. And then we're told in Matthew's gospel that the conclusion of all these things, it says, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. What happened in that moment? The veil in the temple was the veil between the holy place and the most holy place. It was the veil that separated the Ark of the Covenant from the other part of the temple, from that inner place where the priests would go every year, once a year, to make that blood sacrifice and to sprinkle it on the top of that altar. And when that veil was torn in two from top to bottom, I believe we're seeing a picture that it was, it was God literally taking his hand like a knife and slicing that veil and parting that curtain so that, as the book of Hebrews tells us, that there would no longer be a need for sacrifices and there would no longer be a need for a mediator because Jesus became our mediator. And in that moment, as that veil was torn into and as God ripped it himself because of what Jesus did, God was saying to you and me and to everyone who would hear his words, you can now walk freely into the presence of God. You don't need a priest to do that anymore. Why? Because Jesus became our great high priest. And as he did that, he did it so that we could walk right into the presence of the Father by the blood of Christ. And I don't know about you, but I am so grateful for that. You see, it is finished. We don't have to fear. There's no more worry. We have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. It is finished. Lord, we thank you that as we close this Good Friday, we rejoice in those words and we know that they then took your body and they prepared it the best they could and they laid it in a tomb and then they waited. And Lord, as they waited, we are told, as, as we'll find out on Sunday when we spend time together again, 
that they went, but many of them didn't believe. But then you had grace and mercy upon them and you revealed yourself to them. Lord, on this Good Friday, we think about all the things that we're going through and that we're experiencing. But Lord, they are nothing. They pale in comparison to what you suffered, to what you experienced. Lord, the things we're going through are nothing more than minor inconveniences. They're at worst a bump in the road compared to what you did, compared to what you suffered. And so Lord, as we take a moment now and just prepare our hearts for communion, we remember what you did and how before you went through all of these things, just a few hours before, some 20 hours before, you sat down with your disciples and you took that Passover meal with them. And as you took that Passover meal, you did it in honor and in celebration of what was to come. So as we sing a song and prepare our hearts, Lord, we get the communion elements ready, we distribute them to one another, to our families. And this evening, if you're a family together in your home, I just uh, would suggest the Father who I believe God sees as the priest of the home, you should take the elements and serve your family. And if you're not in a family like that, then just serve yourself or serve one another. And then as we sing this song, we'll come back in a moment and we will partake together. Lord, thank you for your love poured out on the cross for us in Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you back in just a moment. <laughs>